All right. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Mining Matters, a mine safety podcast presented by Fisher Phillips. My name is Chris Peterson, and with me, as always, is my partner, Arthur Wolfson. How are you today, Arthur? Oh, we're doing well, Chris. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to our listeners. Uh, You know, we turn the calendar, but uh, it seems like we're going to be talking about a lot of the same issues. I think that's what we're dealing with today. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm excited for the new year, ready to see what 2023 brings. And always, you know, hoping that we see the safest year in mining yet, right? Absolutely. That's the most important thing. Yeah, for sure. I think we're trending in the right direction. So on this episode, we are going to discuss part two of our two-part series on settlements. I'm sure most of our listeners listened to our last episode on conferencing, but today we're going to talk about the settlement itself. So basically, once settlement has been reached, so you've agreed to terms with either the solicitor's office or a conference litigation representative, and you've agreed to a settlement, but how much authority do either of these entities actually have? So I'm sure most folks understand this concept of a settlement being approved by an administrative law judge, right? But we've had a lot of cases quite a few in the last year or two, where we've had judges kick back settlements saying, we're not going to approve this settlement. And basically, you know, kick it back to the operator or the operator's representative and the solicitor. So what do you do in that type of situation? So that's what we're going to talk about today. And then obviously, we'll wrap up with some pointers, right? Some helpful tips on what operators can do to help themselves in getting a settlement approved. But that's just basically what we're talking about today. So, Arthur, what are we going to discuss? Well, you know, I mean, we are attorneys and we work in the legal space. And so, you know, a, a good place to start is with the law. Um, it's always helpful to know what the law says, especially the statute, the Mine Act. Um, and the Mine Act, this is the, you know, last week we talked about, we talked a lot about the uncertainty in the conferencing process. And we started by saying that, you know, I think in our view, the source of that uncertainty was the law, which says that MSHA has authority to grant or deny conference requests. Well, in this topic, when we're talking about settlement approval, the law, again, is the source of what we're facing. And, you know, that maybe that's to be expected, I guess. Um, but but here is the law. Section 110K of the Federal Mine Safety and Health Act says as follows, no proposed penalty, which has been contested before the commission under Section 105A shall be compromised, mitigated, or settled except with the commit except with the approval of the commission. No penalty assessment, which has become a final order of the commission, shall be compromised, mitigated, were settled except with approval of the court. Well, what does that mean? Well, what it means is that MSHA proposes a penalty for each citation. And if the operator contests that, which is checking the box on that form that you all receive when you receive penalty assessments, that serves as a contest of penalty. Once you've contested that, there cannot be a settlement involving that penalty unless the commission or by extension one of its judges approves the settlement so the parties can't just agree to go away they must 
involve the judge. Um, well, now, why do we have this? Well, this is frankly before my time and before your time, Chris, but um, my understanding, both from hearing some stories and from reading the uh, uh, legislative history, is that when the Mine Act was, was, was passed in 1977, it replaced the Coal Act, and the Coal Act did not have this provision, and my understanding is that um, settlements, there was a trend of settlements uh, where operators were paying pennies on the dollar. And that 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 um, you know the, the full uh, penalties were rarely collected. And when Congress saw this, they said, "Well, there needs to be some oversight into the process. It doesn't necessarily mean it's a problem if an operator is paying a much greatly reduced penalty if that's justified. But we need a mechanism in pl in place to make sure it is justified." Because in Congress's view in 1977, what was going on was not in the public interest. So they included this provision in the Mine Act. It's been in the Mine Act ever since. But as with a lot of laws, um, it has led to um, uh, a great source of legal fights. And um, those fights, I guess, are largely between uh, the commission and and the government entity the, who's representing MSHA, which is the Department of Labor solicitors um, solicitor's office. So we will get to that in a second. But but Chris, you know, I, I talked about you check the box, you can test the penalty, and then at the end, if you reach a settlement, the judge has to approve it. Mm -hmm. What happens in between? What does the settlement process look like? And then once we talk about that. A little bit more, we can get into um, some of these legal disputes and and the impact they've had on that process. Yeah, so you know, I, I think in our last few episodes, we we've provided some good information in terms of the settlement process generally, what types of information you provide in a settlement negotiation. And I, I I think about our episode where we had the former solicitors on, right? And we're talking about the settlement process. And so that's essentially what um, what we're talking about today, right? So you've checked the box, you've sent in that assessment form, you've formally contested penalties and the citations that those penalties um, are associated with, right? That contest is assigned a docket number. That docket number gets assigned to an administrative law judge. And that docket is now on that administrative law judge's calendar, right? So he or she is responsible for, um, I don't know, I suppose you could call it navigating, right? The, the legal procedural requirements, um, you know, basically, you know, once you've contested, we get a um, you know, basically what a petition for assessment of civil penalty from the mm -hmm. secretary, the operator files an answer and then negotiations start, right? So you can get as formal or informal as you would like in a settlement negotiation. Oftentimes, you know, Arthur and myself and, you know, other representatives of operators, you deal with, um, the same individuals time and again, right? So over the years, you sort of develop 
um, relationships with these individuals, and certainly an understanding of preferences in terms of how uh, formal, you know, information should be presented to, to, mm. to people, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, it's basically a discussion, right? Not unlike a conferencing process where, you know, you can reach out and you're talking to these individuals and you share, again, factual information, right? We're talking about, you know, individuals that you have a relationship with, uh, you build up a working relationship, like I said, and, and a, a level of trust, right? So, you know, you're looking for accurate um, information that you share. You're making legal arguments in this arena. So that perhaps that's a little bit different than the conferencing process. Uh, you know, you can pull up cases and you can say, hey, this situation is just like, you know, in this particular case or whatever it may be, right? Uh, you can even go so far as to uh, depose the inspector if mm -hmm. you want. You, you get a copy of their of the inspector's notes. You can get engaged in written discovery, um, request for production of documents, written interrogatories, requests for admissions. So you can go full Monty or you can send, um, you know, a couple of emails, follow that up with a couple of telephone calls. You maybe get on the phone with, you know, someone from the district. Um, you know, obviously they follow up with the inspector on their side. Right. So. This whole settlement process, again, depending depending on what types of issues that you're dealing with, really just gets to the meat on the bone, right? Like, what are the issues? You know, how can we how can we reach a resolution? So keep that in mind, right? Because that information that we're sharing back and forth is technically privileged, right? It's a settlement privilege. Mm -hmm. um, if I if I say a certain thing under under settlement, you know, perhaps that's not binding, right? One would hope, right, that right. it's factually correct and accurate. And I don't have any reason to doubt that the information we share is. But um, that information is, you know, privileged, if you will, right? That conversation or that discussion between you and the representative is between you and the representative. Now, we say that because once a settlement has been reached, um, whoever you're dealing with on the government side, they'll typically draft up the settlement documents, right? So a uh, motion approving settlement and then a draft order approving settlement, right? So in theory, the judge would sign the, the order approving settlement and the motion um, gets into the nitty gritty in terms of supplying justification for uh, the modifications, the reductions, the vacates, whatever it might be, right? Um, that motion contains that type of information that Arthur's mentioned that the that the judges are statutorily bound to review to make sure that whatever settlement agreement that you have reached um, meets a couple of factors, right? It's against not against public interest, uh, furthers the purpose of the Mine Act, the protective purposes of the Mine Act. Um, and yeah, and, and to shed light on this, you know, formerly, whatever, what I can't remember the words they use, some process shrouded in darkness or I don't know, something, it was quite foreboding, actually. But um, so that's it, right? So that's the settlement process that we're talking about. And so, uh, you know, that judge signs off after reviewing the information and saying, yes, in my opinion, these, you know, these reductions are appropriate, or... The judge says, no, you have not adequately explained these reductions. Therefore, 
I am not approving this settlement. So in that case, Arthur, what happens? The judge has kicked back your settlement and said, I'm not approving this, or I need more information in order to approve it, or go back to the drawing board, <laughs> whatever, mm -hmm. whatever the case might be. What happens next? Well, and what what the judge may do, and I have had this happen, um, and I, I would venture to say you probably have too, Chris, is the judge may reach out and say, I just need more information. You know, you haven't adequately explained it. Please provide additional information. And typically the parties will do that. And if you do that, then hopefully the judge reviews it again and says, okay, now you've provided enough information. I'll, I'll sign off on it. Have you ever had that, that happen? I have. Yeah. Yeah. The judge's clerk will typically say, Hey, we need, you know, more information on this or the other or, or the judge itself. Right. Um, yeah. May reach out mm -hmm. or, but I've also had judges just deny. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, and, and frankly, the former is what the review commission in its latest sort of iteration of settlement cases has said is the appropriate thing that this mm. is the, that if the judge does not feel that he or she can can um, meet what the act requires in terms of approving the settlements that 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 they are supposed to reach out to the parties and obtain additional information. Um, if they deny the settlement outright and just say no. Um, then I suppose the parties have a couple of choices. One, um, they can negotiate a new settlement, which would be unfortunate because frankly, they've reached a settlement already and they shouldn't have to, to open up, you know, the books again and, and, and start anew. Um, or they can seek review of the judge's decision to deny the settlement. Mm -hmm. Um, that decision is based on, uh, or a review of the judge's decision is based on an abuse of discretion standard. So if that goes up to the commission, the commission will be evaluating, did the judge abuse his or her discretion under the Mine Act in reviewing the settlement and denying the motion to approve it? Um, and maybe unsurprisingly, uh, or maybe surprisingly, I don't know, depending on your perspective, there's actually a line of cases on this mm. because it's happened enough. Um, and, and it is typically the solicitor, the secretary, who is appealing the denial, right? Because they are the ones that proposed the settlement motion, drafted the motion, and the judge is essentially saying, your motion isn't good enough. So, if we take a quick look at sort of the history of those cases, I think a trend, uh, it's sort of, I don't want to say, a, well, we a trend has emerged, but but we've had some ebbs and flows in that trend. Um, there was a line of cases sort of in the early to mid 2010s, starting with a Black Beauty Coal Company case, um, and then sort of continuing on in a case called uh, the American Coal Company. Um, where the solicitor, uh, the solicitor's office, um, uh, argued that the judges did not need to, uh, look at actual facts for each citation, that it could be sort of a blanket factual statement. Um, it would be much less detailed in terms of the facts of the citation, 
in in the American coal case, uh, AMSHA, this uh, the AMSHA and the and the company had agreed on a across the board thirty percent penalty reduction, and uh, the commission said no. Um, the commission said no. We need actual facts to justify any penalty reduction uh, or change in paper uh, under the state under the under the Mine Act, and so they they agreed with the judge in denying the settlement motion because of a lack of facts. And here's the language you were alluding to earlier. The commission said that the standard by the judge is to be guided by is, is the settlement fair, reasonable, and appropriate under the facts mm. protects the public interest. So that, that, that term under the facts sort of highlights that there need to be facts supporting the settlement. Well, what happened in American Coal? That was in 2016. The Review Commission came out with that decision. It went back to the judge. The parties redid their motions. Um, the the judge um, denied the settlement motion again. Went back to the commission, and this time in 2018. And I would note that the composition of the commission has changed by this point. And I think that's important. Mm -hmm. By this point, the commission says, well, the reconfigured uh, settlement motions actually were sufficient the second time around. And this time, the judge abused her discretion in denying that second pass at the settlement motion. And the commission went ahead and approved it. And in this case, in 2018, this is American Coal 2, and there was also a Rockwell companion Rockwell mining case, the judge said there must be three elements. One, the motion must state the initially proposed penalty by the secretary. Well, it's always going to do that. Two, it must state the the penalty agreed to by the parties in settlement. Well, it's going to do that because you yeah. reached the settlement. And then three, this is the big one. There must be facts supporting the settlement. However, there is no requirement that the facts must be agreed to by either party. So we can have a settlement based on facts asserted by the operator, MSHA doesn't have to necessarily agree with those facts, but they are, have facts that have been asserted. Um, and that's a key point because, you know, part of the heartburn that I think MSHA had is, well, are we agreeing that our inspector was wrong? And the, the operators will say, well, of course you're agreeing. You've, 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 you've changed the paper. And MSHA says, no, 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 that was just for settlement. Well, the, the, the commission kind of split the baby. The commission basically said, MSHA, you don't have to admit your inspector was wrong, but operator, you can state that you settled it based on your facts as you see them. So that's sort of where the, the, the commission came down on what's required. Now, I would note that there were two dissents in this case, and, and this was Commissioner Jordan and Trainer. And now we are seeing the composition of the commission changing again. So is this right to be revisited? I don't know. That's something to keep an eye on. And Chris, am I right that there are actually some settlement cases up before the commission pending as we speak? You are right, Arthur. Um, if you are actually to go on the Federal Mine Safety and Health Review Commission's website, you can click on pending cases. 
And I did that yesterday in preparation for today's episode. And there's about, what, 14 or 15 cases Mm -hmm. pending, currently pending in front of the Review Commission. Half of those are dealing with settlement authority. And so you can kind of bundle those six or seven cases into three issues, right? So what we hope to see this year from the Review Commission is some resolution on these issues. So one, um, an issue that that keeps cropping up in settlements is, does the secretary have authority to unilaterally vacate a citation within a docket? It seems to be settled case law that the secretary does have authority to vacate a citation if that citation is the only citation in the docket, right? What we're talking about is, let's say there are, you know, whatever, 10 citations. The secretary vacates three or four of them, doesn't offer factual justification for those vacates, but then, you know, may offer factual justification for um, reducing other designations on the remaining citations. Um, and so that's the that's the question that the Review Commission will be looking at. Is that is that within the prosecutorial discretion, right, that the secretary argues that it has to vacate, you know, perhaps not willy-nilly, right, but at least according to them, vacate citations that that they see fit to vacate. Um, The second issue, which is perhaps even more important, right, is does the secretary have unilateral authority to remove an SNS designation from a citation, right? So, if the secretary in settlement, right, the parties agree to a non-SNS, which um, I have to say is is a very common, you know, theme in any type of settlement, right? Um, you agree to remove the SNS designation. Secretary does or does not have to provide justification for that SNS removal. That's the question that review commission will be looking at. Uh, they cite a, a case, well, actually a couple of cases for the proposition that. Um, an administrative law judge does not have authority to add an SNS designation. Mm-hmm. So I guess the secretary is arguing, therefore, if that's the, if that's true, they do not have the authority to um, object if the secretary removes an SNS designation. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's necessarily an apples to apples comparison, but that's the argument that the secretary seems to be making. So the review commission will sort of outline the boundaries on that issue as well. And then, as as Arthur has mentioned a couple of times now, is the judge's ability to kick back a settlement saying, hey, I need more. uh, I need more information here. Right. So either reaching out informally to the parties and saying, you know, in order to approve this, I need more information or, um, you know, outright denying a settlement saying, you know, whatever, I need more information before I can approve this. Um, so that issue is in front of the review commission as well. Basically, what is the scope of the authority that the review, or excuse me, that the administrative law judge, um, has to request this additional information, right? How far can they go? So I think it's been settled case law that a judge can ask for more information, but what we need now then is the boundaries, right? What types of information, how far can you go? 
down in terms of requesting specific documentation for justification of a reduction. Mm -hmm. um, so as Arthur has mentioned, right, we we are, are seeing, you know, with a change in administration, we are seeing the composition of the Federal Mine Safety and Health Review Commission change once again. And so with the ebbs and flows of these political leanings, you know, whatever you want to call it, yeah, we have a new review commission here. Um, and so while we've, you know, we've seen the scale sort of tip to the other side, now are they going to swing back and uh, we'll get a, a more liberal interpretation of, you know, what these administrative law judges, what their authority is, right, in terms of approving settlement. Did I miss anything, Arthur? What else do we have on, in front of the review commission? No, I think you got it, Chris. I think you got it. Um, I think a couple of thoughts just from from the issues. Number one, this is a this is an unusual situation, although it's not entirely unheard of, but it's a, not the common situation where the operators and MSHA are likely on the same side, right? Because they want to they want these cases to settle. You know, if a case is going to go to court, we'll go to court. But if if it's going to settle, if both sides say, you know what, we've reached an agreement, it serves both parties, we don't want to deal with the uncertainty of going to court, the expense and time of go. We're we're good, right? We're we're good. Both MSHA and the, and the company are, are on the same side on that. Um, so you know that that's that does happen from time to time, but but. But it's not that common. But so we have a situation here where where the where the 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 private industry and the and the one government entity are are likely on the same side. Um, where might labor fall on this? You know, they they might actually be on the other side um, because they did intervene in these American coal cases. So you know, sort of the 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 typical way the sides line up in a case is may not be with this particular issue mm. you know the the other thing i would just point out is i think that the judges who are stricter on the settlements and there definitely are some that are more strict than others i believe and this is my opinion from dealing with you know working with these judges i think they are acting in good faith I think they believe they are being faithful to the Mine Act and what it requires and that their heart is in the right place. Um, that being said, the governmental entities, both the commission and the solicitors, also serve the public, right? So they serve the law, they have to follow the law, and they have to do what they think is in compliance with the law. But by the same token, the reason these entities exist is to serve the public. And in this case, we have parties that have reached agreements and those agreements, you know, barring something completely unforeseen or completely absurd, in my view, those agreements should go forward. So I actually think that the, the way the commission has handled it lately in terms of requiring review, requiring facts, but setting up a framework that allows settlements to go forward serves both. It's faithful to the law, and it also is faithful to the public um, that they serve. Um, the question is, is will we see that modified going forward? And if we do, 
Is that going to make it harder to get cases settled? Because now you may have a situation where if more facts are required, now MSHA and the companies may not be on the same side. MSHA might say, whoa, 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 we're not agreeing to that. And the company says, well, that's the reason we've settled. And now those two sides aren't in alignment. And if that happens and the settlement process breaks down, I don't think that's good for, for frankly, anyone. So, you know, I think this is an issue for um, the regulated community, no matter who you represent, uh, to keep an eye on, weigh in if you see fit, but definitely keep an eye on it because it may, there may be a change in how you go about uh, settling cases, depending on how the commission comes down on this. So those are my thoughts, Chris, maybe a little on the, maybe, uh, maybe a little bit too much pontification for me, but <laughs> be interested to get your thoughts. And then, you know, going forward, you know, we have mostly uh, operators as our listening audience, what should operators do? Yeah. So as you've said, you know, we've, we've been dealing with this issue for a number of years now. And I think we have a good framework in place, right, where these judges have the statutory mandate to review settlements. Mm -hmm. And you're absolutely right. Some judges, um, you know, take a holistic approach, perhaps, on a settlement and don't apply, you know, the magnifying glass that some other judges do. And so I think, you know, when we talk about, you know, judicial activism, I'm not going to get down that rabbit hole, right? But I think a framework that we have is good. And we just need some clear guidelines and boundaries that these judges can use when evaluating a settlement. I suppose my own approach, right, when I when I think about this in terms of settlement, right, I always try to rely on the facts, right? The facts give me the guidelines in terms of, you know, the strengths and weaknesses of my case and the strengths and weaknesses of the government's case. And when I was talking about, you know, sharing that information during the settlement process, you know, while it may be privileged, can't be used against one party or the other if you do proceed to litigation, that going back and forth, that information that you're developing in that process is, is essentially the information we're talking about that would appear in a, in a motion to approve settlement, describing or justifying, you know, the proposed changes. And during this process, I, I try not to get too caught up in, oh, is this going to be enough for the judge to approve it, right? I mean, that's certainly in the back of my mind and certainly something that I look at if, if we're looking at paper with major reductions. But if I'm honest, I only get those types of major reductions um, if there's factual justification for it, right? I mean, this isn't just, I've never really experienced a scenario where I'm just oh, we're going to vacate, you know, says, oh, we're going to vacate this, you know, just because, um, you know, whatever that might be, lack of resources or, you know, lack of enthusiasm to, <laughs> right? I mean, I don't know, whatever. I mean, it just doesn't seem to really, you know, crop up. So, you know, as long as you're being, you know, true to the process and you're sharing real information, right? I don't, um, I don't see this as too much of an issue. And I guess my other thought is, I've always kind of viewed this as an issue between, you know, the secretary and the judges, right? In terms mm -hmm. of, you know, whose power are we really talking about? And yeah, unfortunately, the operators kind of get caught in the crossfire, right? Where this, you know, the secretary is always arguing, oh, we have prosecutorial discretion. We can basically do what we want. Um, and the judges are like, well, not quite, right? And so 
yeah, that tension, right, is is kind of where the operators, you know, sit in between of. So, you know, going forward, what can operators do? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, you know, it's kind of going back to my own experience. I think, you know, look at the facts, right? Do the facts justify? And I'm not saying, oh, you know, don't contest it, accept as written because you don't have good arguments. No, I mean, going through the process, you'd be surprised at how much information does come out, right? How much how much each side really learns about the case, um, you know, going through a settlement process, right? A negotiation. Um, so yeah, by all means, right? Be, you know, be as aggressive as you want and 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 as you as aggressive as you think you should be, right? But um yeah, just stay true to the facts, right? And then be willing to share more information. Um, you know, I think generally speaking, and Arthur, I think you can kind of talk to this point as well. Generally speaking, I think it's the secretary and MSHA, the agency that is much more inclined to um, refuse to share perhaps internal documents, right? That they, they may have policies, you know, whatever it might be, right? That they fear... Um, would set a precedent in terms of, you know, producing, um, you know, most operators that I work with, it's, I mean, shoot, anyone familiar with, you know, the authority of the Mine Safety and Health Administration understands that, you know, there's not a whole lot to claim in terms of, you know, whether it's privacy interests or, um, you know, relevancy. I mean, I don't know what it, you know, could be. I mean, certainly some of the situations exist, but yeah, so I think that's, in my mind, right? Yeah, share share the relevant information. Uh, you know, I'm not saying, oh, you have to be an open book, right? But, you know, um, I think knowing, right, the more that you share relevant information that's factual, the better off you're going to be in terms of getting a settlement approved. Now, that may be a naive approach. Um, that's kind of how I handle it, Arthur. Do you have any any tips or what you think this means for operators? No, I think, you know, I think just to, just to sort of distill it down, I mean, certainly we've talked on several episodes about the importance of facts and providing facts. But number one is, you know, like you said, this is a battle between MSHA and the and the, and the commission. Let let the solicitors do that, fight that fight. You know, if it helps, you know, provide them the facts they need to, but let them fight that fight because this is really over governmental authority. Mm -hmm. And I don't think operators should be wasting you know, resources on, on that fight, keep an eye on it. But, but, you know, in the American coal case, the company didn't even file a brief. Um, and I, I, I think that's the right thing to do. Um, but that being said, you know, there is, there is an out, um, the, the commission has, you know, by saying that it doesn't matter which side supplies the facts. If we get into a situation where, the, where AMSHA just won't provide a justification to the judge's liking, the operator has the option then to come in and provide the facts necessary. So I would say, you know, use that out if you need to. But beyond that, keep an eye on this issue. It's something we're certainly going to keep an eye on. Um, it's something we deal with every day is settling cases. So it's something we'll be keeping an eye on. And we'll be bringing you updates as uh, these cases are decided, because there certainly is a robust list of them up before the commission. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's good. That's a good point. I think with that said, uh, Chris, I think that probably brings us to the end of this topic. I think we've covered the ins and outs of settlement over the last two episodes pretty, pretty comprehensively. 
Um, so um, anything, any last words before we uh, sign off for the day? No, I think you're absolutely right. Right. There's some good information in these episodes and hopefully you guys can, uh, you know, operators listening can, can kind of take this to heart. And then obviously if, if you have questions, right, don't be afraid to reach out to, you know, either us or, or whoever else you might be working with, right. This is, um, you know, an issue that's going to be there. And like Arthur said, we'll, we'll keep you updated in terms of, um, you know, how ALJ authority evolves, right, in, in front of the current commission makeup. But yeah, I think it's great stuff and happy to do it. Thank you, Arthur, for your work. And I appreciate everybody listening. All right. We'll see you next time. Be safe out there. This podcast provides an overview of a specific developing situation. It is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal advice for any particular fact situation. Thank you.